the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. How are you today, man? Tired. Does my voice sound tired? I'm so tired. You also sound defeated right now. (laughs) Yeah, my energy has been defeated. We haven't updated in a while. Are your kids, uh, I should say, are your youngest sleeping better? Is that getting more normal? I know there are, there are some tummy issues. How's that going? Yeah, he's starting to. We took him to a, a chiropractor last week, and, you know, my brother's a chiropractor. I actually am a, mm-hmm. a big believer. He, he seems to be doing uh, a little better. My wife thinks he's really rounded a corner. The oldest now is waking up more in the middle of the night for some reason, totally panicked. Like, it's a very strange, oh, not, not just like the weird fussy, but like, Yep. <laughs> like he saw a ghost. Like, what is happening? So, you know, we're managing some of that. But uh, yeah, I think in general, the other bummer, though, is I sleep way harder than my wife does. <laughs> bummer I'm for like, her. <laughs> yeah, like, sweetie, you got to, you know, she, I, she's a rock star, though. She's she's doing awesome. Yep. So, yeah, she's like took him to a, a butterfly thing today and a water park thing yesterday. She's she's crushing it. I do always say my, my, when my wife and when our kids were little in the summertime and I'd hear of all the cool things they were doing. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like. Sitting in the church right now, and reading, man, answering um, emails. Just want to go see butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> I say that just in general. I just want butterflies. Just, she's like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> right. I don't know." <laughs> butterflies. It's a metaphor, honey. <laughs> it's a metaphor for not wanting to be in my office right now. Oh <laughs> uh, well, we are glad you're here with us. Uh, last night on ESPN. Uh, so the day after the Major League Baseball All Star Game is affectionately called. Uh, the worst sports day of the year because uh-huh. there's no baseball, right? There is obviously no basketball, no football, no hockey, no nothing, right? Mwah, and so uh, ESPN, uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, decided, wow, we could do something in there. I think it was 20 years ago now. We could make some money. Exactly. So they started <laughs> a completely fake uh, show called the ESPYs. And it is always the day after the Major League All-Star game when there's no other sport. So that took place last night. And it's, you know, it's artificial. It's fun. But also, they they also do a really cool thing. They're raising lots of money for cancer research. And it all started way back when Jim Valvano gave his unbelievable speech only months before he died of cancer. Uh, about, you remember, uh, don't give up, don't ever give uh-huh. up. Yep. If you've never heard the Jim Valvano speech at the ESPYs back in the mid to late 90s, you you need to take the time to go to the Internet and listen to it. It is unbelievable. It's fantastic. And so every year they give out the Jimmy V Award for Perseverance. And last night they gave it to a man by the name of Rob Mendez. Uh, and Rob Mendez, I'd never heard of him. And this is why these kind of shows are awesome, because you can start to learn these stories. Rob Mendez was born without arms and without legs. And so you see him last night and he's obviously in a wheelchair, just no arms and no legs. But 
he gave one of the most inspirational speeches uh, I've heard in a while. So we're going to listen to a minute and a half of this. And as you're listening to this, he's a football coach now. I want you to remember that he has no arms and no legs and listen to what he has to say. But the reality is I am here. And if there's any message I want to give you guys tonight, it's to look at me and see how much passion I put into coaching and how far it's gotten me. When you dedicate yourself to something and open your mind to different possibilities and focus on what you can do instead of what you can't do, you really can go places in this world. Realizing I couldn't play football, but I could coach football. That was the way for me to never give up from the words of Jimmy V. That was my way of focusing on what I can do. Let me tell you, best part of coaching for me is seeing someone's potential and making them realize what's possible. So for anyone out there not sure if they can do something, it could be in sports, it could be in your job, it can be in your life, whatever it is, I'm here to tell you that you can do it. You've got to be passionate. You've got to work at it. But it can happen. And I'm not done yet. I made it this far. Who says I can't go further? That's my message tonight. Who says I can't? Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's how I'm now going to end every sermon now. <laughs> you should end the show like that today. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> that would be awesome. But man, uh, how inspirational was that? A guy who is now coaching football and he has no arms and no legs. He has every reason to have uh, looked for pity and given up. And that speech in front of some of the most successful athletes, at least in the world, they all stood through the whole thing. I don't know if you saw this. They just mm-hmm. stood through the whole thing and yep. gave him the biggest ovation. Uh, man, how just so inspiring. So inspiring. Well, and I think it's it's interesting to me why, like I saw Nick, what, what was his last name? Vucevic. Vucevic. Yeah, Vucevic, yep. the Australian guy who was also born without arms or legs. And uh, he actually came to Judson to speak a couple years ago. And uh, I I couldn't fight back the tears, really? not even necessarily because the speech was so good, but it was the same kind of sentiment. Like I had every reason throwing the towel to say we're done to, you know, to, to pack it up, whatever it was like it, it his. And now he's got a you know, wife and kids. And, yeah, that's crazy. And, and for Nick, he, you know, he couches it in a very uh, gospel centered um, type of framework, but both of them are sort of talking about the need more so than ever for perseverance to yep. be a value when it's so easy to cut and run, whether it's our jobs or our marriages or relationships or, you know, whatever, be, be the people that persevere. And I just think, I don't know that that won't ever be a timely message, but for some reason, seeing right. somebody who had every reason to give up and more obstacles than I'll ever actually know of. I, there's something endlessly inspirational yeah. about that for me. And when it comes to perseverance, uh, there's all we always have reasons to quit. We always have reasons to not persevere. But when you watch guys like that, like Rob Mendez last night, you're like, okay, no, you have reasons not to persevere. <laughs> like, yeah, right. A lot of mine are a lot more minor than that. And it does. It inspires you to go, okay, like if if that person can can like. I don't know, lead a successful life, not even just endure, but like have dreams and yeah. go after it and go over these obstacles. I mean, I can't imagine obstacles of no arms and no legs. Then the rest of us can look at that and really garner inspiration, even though that's not why they're doing it. He just wants to be a football coach and yeah, wants right. to inspire kids. 
Uh, but man, I watch that and I'm just like, okay, yeah, no, that's great perspective. So what does that actually do for you practically? Because you don't, you're, I mean, God willing, you'll never know what it feels like to not have arms and legs. And I imagine, you know, you're in your early forties now, so yep. you, you have a good sense of, I, I think your skill set, your giftedness and what you're not good at. How do you actually take a talk like that, a speech like that, a sermon like that? What does it do practically? Like what does it do to Brian Fromm's yep. Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Here, and I'm not, here and now. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure how much it affects it would affect me in the long term. Like next week, I'm not going to be like, oh, my gosh, that guy with no arms and no legs. Yeah. Right. What I think it does in the moment is kind of fill you up. And you're like, OK, let, that, this helps center me. Give me some perspective. And it's almost like fuel in the gas tank now to go. Right. Mm. So it probably provides a lasting effect. Not like a week from now. Am I going? Oh, remember that Rob Mendez guy? I got to right. keep going. I got arms and legs. Right. right. But I got to keep going. So I, what about for you? Uh, I think the answer would probably be pretty similar, but I, I also think, so like part of your answer was that it gives you fuel Mm -hmm. to keep doing the stuff that, you know, is already in your life, but you're feeling beat down by. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it tends to make me dream bigger outside of like the current construct. Like this guy was handed a, he was handed, I imagine a roadmap that looked terrible in his opinion. He said, well, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm doing something different. I'm going to, I'm reaching for something higher or stronger, whatever it is. And I think that that is, I think sometimes an interesting thing to grapple with. How do we actually, Oh man, I believe that our marriages can be way better and that our churches can be healthier. And like, how do we not just maintain, but you know, take speeches like that and and allow them to, to drive us to, I don't know, to think with courage. Yeah. Uh, That's good. I'd encourage you. If you haven't seen the Rob Mendez speech last night from the SPs, go look it up on YouTube. Uh, or the Jim Valvano one from many years ago that kind of started this whole thing. Uh, highly inspirational and uh, would love to hear back from you. So we're off and running here on this Thursday. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad you're joining us on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. It's good to be together again. Uh, every now and then, we just uh, we find lots of articles at Christianity Today. I really enjoyed Christianity Today, now that I can say it. Mark Galley earlier in the week, man. Holy cow, let's have him back every week. Oh, it really was good. Friends, if you didn't hear that interview, uh, and this isn't self-serving, like you need to hear our interview, you need to hear him. <laughs> yeah. If you could edit out our voices, exactly. do that, and just listen to him. And he was so gracious with his time. He went, he went three segments, which... Oh, no. A little inside baseball he had not agreed to. He agreed to two, yeah. and I just kind of dumped it on him. And he's like, sure, I'll say some <laughs> he was more. awesome. It was so, so super good. thankful. Uh, Mark, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. By the way, I want a title with chief in it sometime in my life. I mean, I can give that to you right now if you right want. Now. Chief of the common good. <laughs> I don't know that. I, I don't love this what direction. <laughs> what did you call me in our first week? Sidekick? Along, <laughs> along with my sidekick, Ian Simpkins? Wasn't that like week one? I was one? just trying to get it in there. We, were, we there. were both so clumsy. We're like, what? What, what, what do we do here? Welcome back. We did, in my sidekick. Sidekick. Yeah, you're very was... fatherly. You're fatherly. <laughs> oh, that, one, that was a year ago. That one stung. Yeah, to be honest, that one stung. All right. Uh, anyway, at Christianity Today, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Elliot Clark wrote an article that, that caught my eye, and he says this, uh, the apostles never, quote, shared the gospel, 
and neither should we. Hmm. Uh, basically saying why it's time to retire our favorite evangelistic phrase, particularly this phrase of sharing the gospel. And so let me just read the first paragraph, then love to hear your thoughts. It says, for some time now, American Christians have conceived of their witness in terms of sharing the gospel. Read any book or listen to any talk on personal evangelism, and you'll inevitably encounter the phrase. On one level, the terminology is positive, conveying the gracious act of giving others a treasure we possess. However, if by sharing we imply a kind of charity where we only give the gospel to willing recipients, then our Christian vernacular hmm. has become a problem. And and the article continues to impact that. Here's my first question for you. Okay. Uh, splitting hairs or a good point here? No, I think it's a very good point. Why is that? Well, and I think it probably could be both. Can mm-hmm. it be both splitting hairs and a good point? I like, suppose you referenced the uh, the galley interview, which we talked about even how we talk about worship mm-hmm. and how sometimes as pastors and communicators in particular, where we try to help expand people's definitions to what it really means. Sometimes it's like this aha moment, but other times it's like this. OK, pastor, kind of this eye roll like mm-hmm. we get it. It's all worship. But like, seriously, let's end with some worship. And you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> yes. man. So I, I think this is uh, honestly where this all this whole article kind of comes to a head right here. He says mm-hmm. to evangelize is to preach good news far, far more than just sharing. Evangelism involves testifying to Christ, mm. warning, persuading, defending pleading and calling. And I like those definitions too, because it, it, it doesn't diminish kind of what we're seeing as the most acceptable definition, but it expands it to, to, to some of the other aspects that I think maybe in our modern sensibilities, we've lost a little bit. Mm. The, like the idea of warning, like what, what does evangelistic warning, prophetic warning look like when we say, when we speak truth to power, we say, Hey, if we keep behaving in this way or spending money in this way, uh, this trajectory is not where we want to go. Like many people wouldn't see a warning as evangelism as sharing the gospel, but I think mm. it absolutely is. And if you think about the roots of the word gospel, right? The Evangelion, the sharing of a good news wasn't even a religious term. It was, when a king achieved yeah. victory in battle, they would send someone out on a horse ahead of everybody back to the home city to declare that the battle was won. Yeah. It was declarative. And uh, that makes sense that everybody would be receptive to that. But I think the point of the article is, uh, do we have the wherewithal to share even if someone may be opposed to the message? Yeah. What does that look like? And how do you do that with tact, I think, is a really important question. And I love the the thing that sh- that he says in this where he kind of says, Sharing implies that we we give it to people who are already or they're, they're willing to accept it. They're willing recipients that almost we go, well, who's going to kind of accept this and not, you know, and there's kind of this uh, almost um, value judgment of, well, the hearer isn't going to give me a hard time or maybe ready for this or whatever, which on some level is true. You want to make sure you're not just bombarding people. You and I have talked about. Uh, you know, the, the beach evangelism or all that kind right, of stuff. Right, right, right. How many times? We talk about that a lot. Yeah, I feel like clearly played a big we, role. We in have some undealt with conflict there. <laughs> and then when someone evangelized me in California the other day, I'm like, no, no, now it's over for me. <laughs> now it's over. But, uh, you know, we read this and you touched on this. They said throughout the book of Acts, we find repeated examples of authoritative witness, even in the face of suffering from the apostles and the early church. We find them proclaiming the gospel and speaking boldly. We read of them persuading others. We see them reasoning from scripture. And you read the rest of this before. Um, it's, it is a different posture. And I guess I'd never thought of it. I use the phrase share the gospel all the time. There's nothing wrong with the phrase, but man, it, it does bring uh, into question 
just this uh, how your words really matter and the semantics, even here, in the, the, they use this phrase, it's more than semantics and, and the words matter. Well, and, and again, uh, we don't have enough time to get into this, but I do wonder if some of the danger of hearkening back to a boldness driven mm-hmm. evangelism is that I think we're in an era where boldness is prevalent and meekness is not. So with the rise of social media arguments and, you know, just angry tweets back and forth, it actually feels like more and more people, they're doing fine in the boldness area <laughs> where they're really struggling is like boldness with the aroma of Christ. Like yeah. that, that additional piece to like, to, to proclaim good news. And, and in a lot of ways, honestly, and we've probably both seen examples of this where someone says they're sharing the gospel and they just proceed to share a bunch of bad news. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like good news at all, actually. So, so what does it look like for us to be mindful of? Yes, sometimes maybe we can be far too passive and maybe the word share is responsible for that. But on the other end, I think we could stand to be maybe a bit more patient or a bit more gracious or a bit more understanding. Like, I think that's just as true. And I imagine people listening maybe fall on all ends of that spectrum. And I saw someone tweet the other day said um, spectrums don't have sides. They have extremes. Mm. And so we see extremes in both in both arenas, I think. And what does it look like to be bold when I'm tempted to be meek, but also maybe be meek when I'm tempted to be bold or overly bold? Like, yeah. are, I think both of those taken too far can be unhelpful. And it does feel a little bit like and this is helpful. You are equating all too often boldness. People are boldness. What they're calling boldness is actually rudeness yeah or, right or just uh, sometimes extroversion we call yeah. those the same thing and i don't think they are mm, that's good that's good because i do appreciate that in the book of acts right they pray for boldness and then they went out boldly but yeah that doesn't mean they went out uh rudely or well and they also prayed for signs and wonders as a way to like take the attention off themselves that's what mm. signs and wonders does is like hey this stuff is happening in our midst that we couldn't dream of taking any credit for huh. i think boldness divorced from that actually ends up drawing a lot of attention just to ourselves, which is maybe part of what you're touching on. That yeah. It's boldness divorced from a, a, a sensibility of graciousness and yeah. love and patience. And I think that they have to go hand in hand. And w- as we close this up, tell me in the, in the conversation about evangelism, uh, I'm very interested that you brought up meekness. Yeah. What, what role does that play? How is that? It's weird to call meekness an effective strategy, but just, I think uh, kind, of, well, kind of how is it an effective strategy? I mean, it made its way to the Beatitudes, so it's at least it's at least <laughs> yeah. worth paying attention to, right? Yeah, if yeah, yeah. he chose to include that, he, I don't think he was just running off the cuff. I mm. think it's it's, and I've never really heard it described as a strategy necessarily, but yeah. there has there has to be value to it. I think part of meekness is um, not always feeling the need to fight back, to die in every hill, to 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 give people the benefit of the doubt, to enter into their story rather than just from a distance telling them how wrong they are. Yeah. I think it involves like an embodiment evangelism an incarnational evangelism. I think meekness shares meals and cries with one another. And yeah. so, you know, like it, I think it just takes time. And, uh, and I, you know, when I look at like social media evangelism, which may very well be saving people, yep. a lot of times it seems like it's lacking all of those other things. That's good, man. I never really thought about that. That's helpful. That's why I like the show. I start to think about things I hadn't thought of before. Me too. <laughs> well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Uh, coming up next, we are going to tackle a subject that I've been interested uh, in having a conversation about, and that's uh, a recent controversy around all of these books that do so well about people saying they've died and gone to heaven and then come back and wrote a book about it. We're going to tackle that one next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, get lots of feedback there, people interacting with articles. And I'm particularly interested in the feedback and the interaction around this next story. Uh, because, man, I, I actually think this is I'm going to show my cynical side. OK, uh, the genre we're about to talk about is one of my pet peeves in Christian marketing. And oh, for many reasons, it what really a tease is. it is. Uh, and so the the first line, this is from the slate dot com from slate dot com from July 8th. It says how the controversy around a Christian bestseller engulfed the evangelical publishing industry and tore a family apart. And so it's the story of Kevin and Alex Malarkey. Uh, they were they were driving and uh, they were in a car accident and Kevin was thrown from the vehicle. That's the dad. But Alex, the son, uh, was um, he had what was uh, called an internal decapitation. His skull essentially separated from his spine uh, and the injuries were so serious they thought he'd be dead at the scene. Uh, six years later, a book was published that then became a sensation. Many of you have probably read it and it's called this The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven with the dad and the son as the co-authors. And it tells the saga of Alex's improbable survival. And it wasn't just that the medical miracle, but basically Alex tells this story that in that time he was taken up into heaven, visited by angels and demons after he emerged from his coma two months later. Uh, He says that he traveled down a bright tunnel, was greeted by five angels and then met by Jesus uh, who told him he would survive. Later, he says he saw 150 pure white angels with fantastic wings, he begins to describe heaven and hell and the devil and angels. Uh, it sold more than one million copies, spent months on the New York Times bestseller. Uh, and it was also, it says, on the leading edge of a booming industry known as heaven tourism stories. Oh, boy. In Christian publishing, you might know some of the others, ones like Heaven is for Real, uh, Flight to Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven, To Heaven and Back, Miracles from Heaven. All of these are stories about people who say they've died, went to heaven, came back, and then wrote about it. Uh, basically, this story goes, though, that Alex, quadriplegic now, uh, disavowed the story. Yeah. Tyndale pulled it after his disavowal, but he is still publishing Tyndale. Uh, I'm sorry, he's still uh, suing Tyndale, hmm. and that's what the story becomes about. But uh, I have a real hard time... Mm. Let's say this. I have a really hard time with these books about yeah. uh, men and women and kids who go to heaven and come back uh, because I generally am highly skeptical of them. And I feel like there are a lot of Christians, whether it be in my church when these come out or just other churches or online or whatever, who are obsessed with them. Mm. And they're like, see, this is what heaven's about. I'm like, no, I read your Bible and find <laughs> out some stuff. Uh, and, and I think that these books are... Um, are often done for profit and are uh, are dangerous. And so, uh, and the fact that the slate, which isn't a Christian thing, called it uh, a booming industry of heaven tourism. Uh, yeah, that stings. It's a, it's a little cynical right there. But uh, so I don't know how you feel about them. And this is an ugly story. And we're not even getting into the details of how it tore this family apart. Basically, dad from son. Right. He's a, the son's a quadriplegic. He's suing Tyndale. Tyndale pulled everything. They'd made all this money. Then he says he got used. Oh, it's just ugly. But I kind of want to get above the fray of the family and, and get your feel about this genre of Christian publishing altogether. Well, OK, first. I cannot get around or get my head around um, a story that ends up not being true by a family with the last name Malarkey. (laughs) 
<laughs> how? Let us pause and just love what you did there. That was great. How? How? The first time I read, I was like, "They're laughing." Oh my gosh! <laughs> Merriam-Webster, malarkey, meaningless talk, comma nonsense. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you Heaven is for Real was written by John Gibberish. <laughs> yeah, right. And his dad, Grandpa Haberdashery. Like, like I don't. Anyway, anyway. That's really good, man. Two uh, thumbs up on thank that you. one. Thank you. Two thumbs up on that one. I'm not all that proud of it, but I, I'll take the thumbs up. Um, to be fair, again, you mentioned, like, oh, I think these books are written for profit. Every book is written for profit. 100%. So, like, that, you know, that is. I guess I should say. My cynical side feels like they're made up for profit. Right. And I get that. And so the other thing, I'm just going to poke at what you said first before I respond. Because you also said, well, you could also read your Bible. But yeah, if they were reading Andy Stanley, they're like, oh, no, yeah, read Andy Stanley. Like that's, you know, we, Good point. we do encourage our people to read outside of the Holy Writ, which Valid is, point. you know, acceptable. And I think where it gets tricky, I imagine you were a pastor when the shack came out, right? I was. You probably I was, had, yes, did yes, you have I to was. navigate some of that? Like, pastor, yeah. is this? I wasn't the lead pastor, so I could point him to him. Yeah, just, <laughs> just go talk to that guy. <laughs> but no, that was a huge it was, one. It was. Because but that's a weird balance. Yeah, You're like, yeah. is, okay, do I think this is 100% spot on? No. But do I think it actually is engaging in really important discussion? Okay, maybe. Maybe I can. So I could see. Maybe somebody making a case for that. All that said, I tend to agree much more with your perspective on these things. Um, But I will also address my own cynicism has been wrong. I have a number of friends who are, dare I say, much more spirit led Mm -hmm. and have witnessed things and seen things that up until the moment of me seeing them. I was just as cynical as anyone. Fascinating. And then you have to interact with like, okay, shoot. What would be an example? I'm curious. You know, I've seen, I remember, I, I remember the first time we like saw somebody in, in my church get healed. Yeah. They asked me to pray for them. And I had like no sense of that at all. And they came back the next week and it was like, a, I forget what it was. Something very external, something very visible. Not just like, oh, wow, I had back really? pain and now I don't have back pain. It was like, oh, shoot. Now I... Okay, I have to reconcile that somehow. And I have other friends who are like much more courageous and much more in that realm. Yep. But, you know, think about Darren Wilson and Wanderlust Productions, and he's gone around capturing, you know, acts of God all over the planet. And some of them have uh, have held the test of time. Others yep. have now been found out to be, you know, a, yep. a bit of a swindle. Like yep. that's a, the gold dust was planted or the jewels and the seeds or whatever. So all of that to say, I think this kind of stuff does in a lot of ways really hurt the Christian witness yep. because people read this at slate.com and they're like, Oh, see, there's one more family just sort of milking the machine to yep. make a buck. And the heartache is that the family was ripped to shreds and that this kid's in a wheelchair is. like that. All that like really breaks my heart. And, you know, I've read other studies that talk about like the brain's capacity for uh hallucination and whatnot when it's close to dying. So some people oh. are often tempted to believe that they have been to heaven in this state of their brain sort of quote being switched off. Um, that's not excusing it. And, and I, uh, you know, I believe in heaven and we can talk about what I mean by that, I guess another time, yep. but I don't know this, this type of stuff gets tricky for me because you're right. It does sometimes seem like is the only motive to, to make a dollar or to make a name for yourself. Cause that seems, that seems unfortunate this I, again i'm showing my cynical side on these books these books uh you liken them like sometimes things do happen that we can't explain these always feel more like the prosperity gospel to me like what mm. can we do that's going to yeah blatantly right. bring in books I, you know right. do i believe that this is possible yes sure do i believe that all of these books it, and it's really heartbreaking the dad basically said either my son was lying when he was six or he's lying when he's 18 <sighs> like, oh, that's people. Parents are divorced now. Like it's just an ugly yeah, story. I know. I know. Uh, 
I guess what I would say is this, and you make a really good point. You you are the uh, you are the calm one in this one. <laughs> I would make this point. I would say yes, read outside of scripture, but don't. Sometimes it felt like, in my experience, people were reading these books because scripture was hard to understand about heaven and this and that, and sure. so they were going over. Just I would just caution. I would I would caution. I, I would say. And uh, I remember that the buzz around heaven is for real when it came out in a movie and all this stuff. And it was like, okay, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, but I tend to be pretty skeptical. Well, and maybe a good challenge too, is the idea that, you know, whether or not these books are legit, we, we focus more of energy on bringing heaven to earth now. That's good. Like our Lord taught us to pray. You know what I mean? Like it's easy to consume these books and get really, and I'm not saying that's the, that's a terrible thing to do necessarily, but we also need to, I think, be concerned about, you know, bringing heaven to earth I and, I, and i think that's a much that's a much more like here and now present challenge that we can all kind of grapple with i would uh I, we keep teasing it out i'm very interested for your thoughts on heaven we're going to do a whole couple <laughs> segments maybe bring somebody in i've got my own thoughts so. we should bring somebody in that'd be really yeah, funny that'd be fun anyway well you're uh <laughs> just stumbling over my words i talk for a living <laughs> for ian simpkins i'm brian Fromm. you're listening to the common good am 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you're joining us today on this Thursday afternoon. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast. I was joking with Ian earlier that sometimes I think we do more of a podcast than we do a radio show. Because everyone <laughs> I meet is like, oh, I listen to your podcast. I listen to your podcast. And I'm like, all right, that's pretty cool. Like, I, I don't know if you find that too, but... I think it's about 50-50. Like, okay. even think about when we have the, you know, the Cross International of Food for Poor People. And, and anytime we're, like, helping raise money in real time, that's always, like, a, an important reminder to me that, like, oh, there are people that listen in, in, through both avenues, both ways. Someday when this show takes over the, the media world, I think we do a party <laughs> where something, like an event where it's radio listeners versus podcast oh, listeners. Oh, like a battle royale? Yeah, like a... Literally, you used to watch a WWF and it'd be like the Royal Rumble where they got to throw each other over the top. <laughs> Who's going to agree to that? Podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> their only weapon of choice is like their headphones. Like that's <laughs> beaten up with that. Can't, can't bring wireless ones. That won't work. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, we're glad that you're listening. You can find the podcast at Google Play, Apple Podcast, uh, wherever it is that you get the podcasts. And uh, we'd love to hear back from you as well. On religion news, Karen Swallow Pryor, who I believe is a, uh, she's a professor, right, at Liberty University? Yeah, she's brilliant. She's a great follow on Twitter uh, and reading her writings, really prolific really and smart, really good. Really thoughtful, yeah. Also has written some crazy stuff. Last year she got hit by a bus and almost died. That's like, right. Like literally a bus. And uh, so a lot of stuff she wrote about that was really impressive and really good as well. But anyway, Karen Swallow Pryor wrote, uh, for the religionnews.com last week. And here's the title, Why Listening Matters, Even If You Think the Other Side is Wrong. And man, this just feels so timely because <laughs> yes. uh, I think we, you and I have talked, we're not sure that as a culture we listen uh, very well. So um, talk to us about why listening matters, even if you think that, that you're right. Yeah, I think the paragraph that kind of lands it for me. I'll just straight up read it because it said so much better than I could say it. Uh, it Mark Knoll has memorably characterized the tendency of evangelical Christians to prioritize activism and pragmatism as quote, uh, as one quote dominated by the urgencies of the moment over the broader or deeper intellectual efforts. Mm -hmm. This activistic impulse is deeply embedded in the DNA of many of us with evangelical roots. And it partly explains 
why we tend to rush into quote engage culture mm. and ask questions later. Yet, as Ken Myers has pointed out, the recent uh, increased attention paid to culture has not necessarily led to the fixes we hoped for. Engaging with the right motives, but without proper reflection, often leads to disappointing and even dangerous results. Goes on to say, Nicholas Nicholas Kristof recently chided his own liberal community for giving up on persuasion and simply attempting to shut down opposing views without actually engaging them, saying, if you want to win an argument, you have to allow the argument. Mm. Which I think, like you were saying, timely is the word that comes to mind for me. Like how... True that is, honestly, on both sides of the coin, yeah. both sides of the aisle, every end of theological spectrum, like, I think we all could stand to engage this better. And not only to allow for the engagement, but part of what he's saying here is the the proper reflection following these encounters is something that I think we've, because there's so many fires to put out all the yeah. time, it seems, Yeah, it feels like we have lost the space for, like, thoughtful, especially, like, communal reflection following a tragedy or a legislation mm-hmm. or a heated debate. We just sort of jump to like, if we lose, we like lick our wounds, like, all right, next battle. <laughs> next thing I saw on Twitter, next thing I saw on Facebook, like I feel like we've, we've lost some of the, uh, the healthy rhythms of like activism and reflection. Yeah. And, and that can be really dangerous. That's really good. I feel like where's Christoph is so good here and he's chiding. It says his own liberal community, but uh, I think we can pretty well say this is true on both sides of the aisle. And I, I think you have a choice when you disagree with somebody, whether it be online or face to face, uh, you can engage that opposition and engage it in discussion, or you can shut it down, like he says. And that is just such a powerful line that I just want to chew on. If you want to win an argument, you have to allow the argument. You can't win an argument that does it. If you shut it down, you're not winning the argument. You're just ending the argument. Right. And uh, an argument may not be the best word there. Maybe we go with debate. It's a little, it's a little, little nicer. Uh, but I'm okay with the argument though. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I mean, yeah. you you said a little nicer, I guess you're kind of, we're, we're sort of showing our cards there too. Like, no, I don't like uh, arguments. Some stuff, some, some stuff I think you need to argue about and I'm okay with that. There's a right and wrong way to do it though. And so, um, well, what makes this the right way to do it? Do you think there is a time to shut down debate or is it, uh, you know, I guess I guess continue to unpack what she's talking about here and that Christoph's talking about this engaging debate uh, and why that's the more powerful way to go. Well, I think what's tricky is, you know, we did a uh, a segment four or five months back now, and the title is still kind of haunts me because it said um, mm-hmm. there's no virtue in common ground. And the whole story was talking about sometimes the issue is so volatile or so violent or so evil that it isn't about, hey, let's meet the middle yeah. and let's compromise. Christians do need to sometimes say, nope, that's just wrong. That's evil or that's toxic. That's unhelpful. Um, I do think sometimes we jump to that conclusion far too quickly. So we assume every hill is worth dying on. Every conclusion I have is definitive. Uh, Every piece of evidence I've read has been perfectly vetted. And my objectivity is better than yours. Um, I think those are really dangerous presuppositions to come into any discussion with. But... I think this idea of, and we say it a lot, you know, listening to understand, not listening to respond. Mm-hmm. I think we have a, a uh, an understanding deficit as a culture. And I'm saying that collectively. It's easy to kind of paint culture under this. So I'll speak to Christians. I think we yeah. struggle in particular because, you know, and we, and we hear, you know, leaders say stuff like, oh, the Democratic Party is a godless party. Well, that's <laughs> perpetuating a lot of what this article is railing against. Well, yeah. if you do that, then you've given yourself the ultimate Trump card. Like, well, I can't, I can't even talk to them on the same planes because the whole party's godless. Yep. Like, well, that is subtle, but it is also it's a dismantling of any integrity that the opposing yep. view may have. And that's where I think it gets really tricky because. 
we'll we'll never fully agree on which what what is an argument worthy topic and what is a let's let this one slide topic. Yep. Which is why I think like mutual imago day, sacred dignity, that kind of stuff at the forefront is so important because we're we're going to disagree either way. Yep. But why would you just spend so much time, particularly for Christ followers, talking about unity? being one of the main vehicles by which people will know that right. Jesus is for real. Yeah. But they'll look at that outsiders will look at us and say, man, I don't know that I buy their whole Bible Jesus resurrection thing, but holy cow, look at the way that they link arms, even amidst their differences, even amidst their disagreements and make a difference in the world and are thoughtful about it. And I just think that kind of stuff sends a, a much bigger signal than we realize. That's really good. And and the the whole concept of we can disagree without being disagreeable uh, it's right. something that we've lost as a culture, all the way at the top of our culture, all the way down. And, and sadly, oftentimes Christians are not just following culture, but they're kind of the worst of this. And <laughs> yes. So total aside, you use the phrase already when, when you're talking about, especially in the world of politics. Yeah. The, the phrase I can't use anymore is Trump card. Whenever I say Trump card, I always <laughs> and you said it. I always say Trump card because it's such a good phrase and it works. But I always feel like I have to say no pun intended. <laughs> What's a good synonym for Trump? I mean, no, Trump card is the perfect phrase, but I always want to be like, no pun intended. (laughs) Well, I mean, as a lover of puns, I see no problem with that. Because even there you were talking about politics and you were like, but they think they have the Trump card. I was like, yeah, they do. That's good. (laughs) Uh, Defeat, exceed, overtake. Card. Card. (laughs) The outdo card. Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't flow. Just keep going Trump card with no pun intended. (laughs) Just, you always have to say it. And then, uh, I like how your voice gets lower. You're like, no, no, no pun intended. intended. It's, it's like, like parentheses. Right, like you're sharing a secret or something. <laughs> uh, well, that's good. We, we want to be able to disagree without being disagreeable, and that's increasingly difficult in our culture. But it's important. It's important to do. Well, the first hour is in the books. Uh, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. This is The Common Good. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you're joining us here on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is that you find your podcasts. And uh, you still can text us. I don't know for how much longer because no one ever texts us. It makes me sad. <laughs> Just going to remove the text line from my life. But uh, The fact that you made that like so despondent. It deserves it. Does it, though? Yeah. All right. Like, uh, are you expecting people to be like, no, don't take away the text line? I'm hoping. I'm hoping. 68683. They're not going 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Because I was the one who was like, I was so sure in the beginning of the show. Remember me? I was like, people will interact with the text line. They got to get it. And now I was wrong. I appreciate you admitting that. I might just text it right now. (laughs) I'll know it's you. We're the only people who see it. I need a burner. I need, a burner, phone. I need a burner phone. <laughs> You'd spend money just to make the text line stay, just to dupe me, wouldn't you? That would be a worthy investment in your life. Do I mind. need to answer that question? No, you do not. Do I need That's so. all rhetorical. Anyway, we're glad that you're with us today. And again, you can interact with us. Go to Facebook and other places. And uh, we're, we're excited to have you with us. 
an interesting opinion article written at the Baptist News uh, that is just entitled this. Uh, entitled, uh, entitled millennials aren't killing the American church. Entitled churches are. That's like a, that's a big one right there. Yeah. And, and we often talk about millennials, 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 and how frustrating they can be, and they can be entitled, and they can be this and that. And this author doesn't dispel that. He says millennials are entitled, but guess what? So is everybody else. It's not necessarily generational. It's more a sin nature problem or what else. Uh, but because of that, churches have become uh, entitled and they're entitling their people and a really interesting and, quite frankly, as a pastor, uh, a concept that cuts pretty deeply. Yeah, the, I'll just let me encourage you to go to the Facebook page and read the whole article. It's brilliant. It's so much smarter than it really is. A third word you used. I didn't know what it was. That was really good. <laughs> he had to go have the Internet uh, pronounce it for me. So let me just <laughs> read a little bit uh, into the article and then we'll get some reactions. Um, yep. It says, I admit as a millennial, uh, it's almost impossible not to get swept up in the nationwide guttural moans. Anytime I happen upon the word trigger warning at the top of an article about maintaining a gluten free lifestyle with crossfitting heavy. Uh, I will also admit that fewer fruits hang as low and fewer dead horses have been beaten as severely as an article about millennials entitlement in Christianity. So I'd like to get out in front of this. Of course, millennials are entitled because everyone is. I'm entitled. You're entitled. Your kid is entitled. All human beings are entitled. The question isn't if we are entitled or how we become entitled. It's what are we entitled to and who owes us said entitlements? Here's what I mean. As a psychotherapist rooted in a school of family therapy known as uh, New Contextual Family Therapy, I was taught that all humans, regardless of cellular makeup, nationality, or socioeconomic status, aren't just entitled to food, shelter, and water, but also to what the fathers and mothers of this movement referred to as, quote, love and trustworthiness. Mm. And here's the kicker. These psychiatrists and therapists even go so far as to say unequivocally, the parents are to work to ensure the delivery of these two entitlements without expectation for repayment. And I think that is a really Mm. uh, intense position to take, especially given this writer's awareness of the current social climate. And it's what I think makes it kind of refreshing because it's saying things I think maybe a lot of people have felt, but haven't found the courage to actually say. And I'm, and I'm curious in what ways you've seen some of what this article is proposing played out specifically in a church context because we're both pastors and I think we probably spend more time thinking about church life than most people, especially maybe non-vocational ministry people. But like, where do you see the parallels and what are, what are some of the dangers of that? Yeah. So with this concept of entitlement, um, it's hard, man, because we were just talking about this at our elder meeting last night and the, the draw, and this isn't, this is a little apples and oranges, but this draw to like always, uh, treat our people like consumers and try to give them everything that they possibly might want give so that what they, they can want, stay right, right. and they can stay. And the more that we do that as churches, the more that we're building that into the people. I don't think people come to churches as consumers as much as we kind of turn them into it and mm. just kind of give them what they want, give them what they want. And he even says when a church serves individuals, families, and whole communities with no expectation that they in turn will ensure the church's ongoing survival. That church is for perhaps the first time repairing the world. Hmm. And that, man, that's, that's really hard because um, I don't think that that's the way most churches work. I just don't think so. And, really? and, and, and they, we want to, 
Uh, but but there is that is really going against the stream, I guess I would say. Yeah, it talks about uh, destructive entitlement. It says destructive entitlement is why your dad yelled at you in the van all the way home from t-ball practice for not hustling as a five-year-old instead of just giving you space to be a kid who knew what was mm. most important to his father. Destructive entitlement is why you spent so much of your adolescence worried about how to please your mom instead of just being a kid who knew where you stood with the woman who cared the most about you personally. Yeah. Destructive entitlement is why I went so far as to tether the whole of my early professional identity in a misguided attempt to please a God who remained both distant as well as uh, constantly disappointed in my efforts. Yeah. Man, that's, this guy's a good writer. Right? He's a really good. How, let me turn the question to you. How do you think this plagues the church now? How do you think this is an issue for the church? Uh, I can't say completely confidently that I think it only shows up in sort of our consumeristic tendencies, mm-hmm. although I think that's part of it. Yep. Um, I think that last sentence of what I just read is probably the bigger, less talked about component that when we create a, a moralistic therapeutic deism mm-hmm. that's hell bent on just simply appeasing a God who's not close anyway, like it feels like, you know, for a lot of people at our church, the stories that I hear a lot are that I, I know that God loves me, but I don't know that he likes me. And people mm. feel like unwanted house guests at God's party. And like God's trying to give them all the cues. Like, hey, you got you got to go. Like we feel reluctant about approaching God and we feel sheepish. And it's it's the great irony for me is that when we really understand the scandal of grace, but we still feel shame for admitting the reasons we need it. Like that's so backwards. And I yes. think in grace, there's freedom to say, man, I, I, uh, I know my identity in God and I work hard, obviously. But, you you know, we're, we work from God's affection, not for it. And I think that switch is so important to work from it, not for it changes your motivation. It changes all the implications. It changes. I mean, it's, it's what I think I've spent most of my life wrestling to really do well. And you and I are both pastors. So we want to do well and we want people to like the sermon and we want our churches to grow all these things that aren't evil, but they can become, I think much more subtler, uh, manifestations of what that entitlement looks like. Yeah. I think one of the most powerful things for me when I became a dad, uh, was and continues to be just the unconditional love I feel for my children. Yeah. Like I never look at my kids and I'm like, well, you know, you didn't do really well today. So I'm going to give you half love mm. <laughs> or this. Mm. And, but yet we approach God, our heavenly father, like that so often, like, uh Oh, didn't do my devotions today. Right. I kind of, my mind wandered while I was trying to pray. Uh, now, now my heavenly father's he, he's out on me right now. And, and that kind of guilt and shame, uh, really becomes burdensome when I would never approach my own children like that. Uh, and and hopefully most of our parents didn't approach us like that. And we're not perfect, but we yeah. have a perfect heavenly father, but yet we project that upon him that that must be how he views us. Yeah, no kidding. This, this other paragraph for me just sort of, this lands the whole thing. It says, when a sacrifice is demanded, the Christian God ties himself to the altar mm. and in so doing embodies an inerrant truth at the center of all of this entitlement, namely, that when you and I and even the creator of the universe give what we always needed to people who can never pay us back, we are participating in what my Jewish friends call the tikkum alam, the repairing of the world through tiny acts of restorative justice. When a church serves individuals, families, and whole communities with no expectation that they in, in turn will ensure the church's ongoing survival, that church is, for perhaps the first time, yep. repairing the world. And I just, it is the anti-entitlement, right? Yep. And I think that is such a helpful and needed timely posture that honestly even just personally i'm reading feeling very convicted by and yeah. I, you read it and you think yeah that feels right that feels like 
what we should be heading towards. Yeah, and so often we, and the irony is that this is what people need. To, this is what makes it good news, right? You don't need to earn your way. Yeah. And yet we, we as Christ followers have such a struggle following that. And like you said, we don't even orient our churches around it. It's, it's really hard. And it, it's a great segue into what we're going to talk about in the next segment here, an article from Christianity Today that talks about uh, what this author calls the disappearing missionary impulse. Mm. And this might actually play into that a little bit. Uh, do we even think it's good news? And so hmm. uh, we're going to ask that question. Is the missionary impulse disappearing in evangelicalism? And what does that look like? And why might that be the case? Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thoughts on this music? Our music I like it better now. I like it better now. Okay. Before it sounded a little bit like a fire drill. Fire yeah, it sounds, sounds like, <laughs> like if someone just turned it on. Like, oh no, there's a tornado. I better pull over. <laughs> I better listen for more instruction. <laughs> if I'm ever, man, I remember there's a, uh, I think it was a POD album, and one of the tracks began with a police siren. And I would listen to it in the car all the time, and the police siren would come on, and I would always freak out because I, you know, was uh, not expecting to hear a police siren. And, uh, Got me every time. My brother-in-law and I were having a conversation. This is completely off the subject, but that's what we do on radio. We don't have a subject yet. We were, so. we were having a discussion uh, in the car over 4th of July. We were up in Wisconsin with them, and we were discussing about how um, about how um, grunge music has kind of stood the test of time. We were listening hmm. to the Lithium channel on uh, XM. Yes. And uh, it's right in our wheelhouse from high school or whatever. Uh-huh. And we were discussing why with some that haven't. And I've never thought of this. And I made me think, were you a fan of this? Because I feel like you could be or you hated this. What okay. I'm going to say. The one that has not stood the test of time was from when I was in college. You remember Ska? Oh, yeah. I could see you loving Ska and I could see you hating it. But I don't see like you being ambivalent to it. Love is not a strong enough word. to Really? It. Yes. Okay. Checkered everything. My car, my wow. pants, my my roller skates, my drum set, <laughs> everything. I played in four ska bands. No way. Yeah. We're getting to know each other too no, well. I, I guessed it. Punk and ska holds a really, really wow. like dear place in my heart. Am I am I right to say that ska has not stood the test of time? Like you, are, fa- you are false. It's, really? Yeah. In fact, there's a documentary coming out about some of that subculture around the time that you and I were probably listening to it. It is... I- uh, I never listened to you it. You never did <laughs> ever. That was never, was never my thing. But oh, it was so when I was in college. It was like very, lots of trombones, right? Lots uh-huh. of this, yep. like, yeah. a lot of a lot of upstrums. Yep. Uh, who was the biggest ska Christian band? I couldn't remember. Him and I were talking. Well, there's Five Iron Frenzy. That's it. That's the one I was trying but to think. There's of. also Supertones. That's but there's also right. Insiders who are f- from my that. hometown. Okay. Uh, so I remember Five Iron Frenzy and Supertones. Those were big. Well, Five Iron Frenzy is playing with. Uh, MXPX right now. So they're, they're doing still they're doing one off weekends and stuff. Yeah, they got back together. So I was premature in killing off ska. That's okay, <laughs> but I, rem- I knew it, what it was. There you go. The weird thing about like the subculture of ska is that they're actually okay with that. Like it, like it makes it more underground. <laughs> they, you know, they want people like me not to <laughs> think it exists. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, was it was Michael W. Smith ska? No, just, <laughs> yeah, he was. He, he was close. He was close. He's ska light. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, making a hard right turn. What a segue. Uh, on the Christianity Today website earlier this week was an article uh, entitled A Disappearing Missionary Impulse. And this is right in our wheelhouse of things you and I often talk about. But let me uh, read this for you. It was written by a guy by the name of Matt, uh, Matt Rogers. Summer presents a wide array of missionary opportunities for those attuned 
uh, to how the spirit of God might be at work in the places they live, work and play. The pace of life changes, providing more time for interaction with neighbors, coworkers, friends and even seemingly random strangers that we might encounter on a summer vacation. Each block party or time at the pool is an occasion when God can bring into our past those in need of the hope that only Jesus can bring. These seasons, however, often expose and in how infrequently most of us are actually looking for a missionaries missionary encounters. Imagine that you are serving in an international context that had as part of its annual rhythms a time when people from all walks of life would meet and have occasion for meaningful conversation. You'd likely plan your evangelistic work to take full advantage of this season, knowing that you need to use every chance you get to engage the lost because it's difficult to manufacture such opportunities on your own. Can the American church regain such a missionary impulse? If we are to do so, the hope rests on common people of God, missionary disciples infusing their lives with a missionary impulse. Ian Simpkins, what do you think? I love it. It is the kind of, it's, it's also a little frustrating because uh, so far this article has said so much more succinctly and so much more beautifully what you and I have been saying for six months. It's actually right. (laughs) Like I read it and a little bit of me is sad because I'm like, Oh, we could have saved eight shows here. Yeah, That's so much better put, but yeah, I, you're, yeah, I mean, you're totally right. These are both, this is actually, you and I disagree on a lot of things. This is the kind of thing that I think we, we just keep going back to. Yep. This is the way people will be reached with the gospel in uh, more organic neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend. Uh, so I, I guess what I would ask you is, do you agree with the premise of the article that there is a disappearing missionary impulse uh, within evangelicalism? Uh, and if so, maybe why is that? And how do we get that back? Uh, do you think the premise is correct? Uh, I think the premise is half correct. I think that we're seeing the impulse alive and well in some unexpected places. I think we're seeing it more alive and well in some cases outside of the institutional church, Interesting. Um, which, you know, how we define evangelicalism, I guess, is maybe anyone's guess at this point. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there this is sort of my love hate relationship with some of these premises, because sometimes I feel like we're only getting a sample from a very narrow mm. field. Um, but we've done a lot of other stories where the evidence shows that millennials are actually more comfortable mm. having some of these important conversations than a lot of their boomer counterparts. And I think, all right, well, that's something. Why aren't, why aren't they showing up in our metrics? So I, you know, I would love to just spend the rest of the time. He kind of gives these three suggestions that I think yep. are really, uh, really helpful. The first, he says an unhurried life. There is perhaps no greater obstacle to missionary living than the breakneck pace of most of our lives. Amen. Mm. Rather than slowing down, we actually schedule a whole host of events and activities that keep our RPMs up. Even when we don't have to, We're often guilty of overloading even our vacations with so much activity that it's hard to take a deep breath, look around, and engage in conversation without having to consider where we are going next. The church is a culprit as well. We pack a summer schedule full of events for believers to connect with one another, all the while inadvertently stealing time Mm -hmm. from meaningful missionary activity. Most of us would find far more margin for missionary practices If we simply slowed down, took a stroll through the neighborhood with no agenda, cooked out with a few neighbors or hosted a game night and invited a few people we met at the pool. These unhurried rhythms allow us to live as normal people on mission. Yeah, it's so good. We I do think that busyness is the number one thing that robs us. It's just we run when we run and we run and we run and we wave to our neighbors and we move on to the next thing. Yeah, totally. All right. So we okay. we're we're going to run out of time. I'm going to go for it anyway. Break free. Number two, break free. Next up. We need to find ways to break free from our incessant connection with the chatter of the world. That's well said. Mm -hmm. There's a place for critiquing the ills of social media, which is not my goal here. Rather, 
I'd merely like to point out how many conversations most of us squander because we're living in a fantasy world of conversations online. Even if we are unhurried, we can be perceived as preoccupied if we always bury our faces in our phones or stick buds in our ears. Simply having mm. our eyes up, looking for people online behind us at the coffee shop or walking past us in the neighborhood can provide inroads into far more meaningful interactions than the world of social media will ever provide. So true. So true. Just we're so connected in other ways that we just miss everything around us. Yeah, right. You want to take this last one? Creative experimentation. Finally, we should empower all of God's people to dream as missionaries again. I love that. The era of church growth created the illusion that it was the church as an organization that designed and implemented events to reach the lost. This impression rendered the majority of the church passive. But who better to know what would best connect with someone than a neighbor or a coworker who knows and interacts with them daily. What do you think of that creative experimentation? Uh, I mean, it's funny because we were just having this conversation in the office earlier where I was talking with another friend of mine where we both really like taking risks Mm -hmm. and we're planning something for, you know, for this weekend, that's actually a little bit risky. And so it's, uh, I love living in the tension of having the more risk averse people also at the table because it, I think it creates a really well thought out rounded experience overall. Uh, but for me, yeah, I think, you know, we talked months ago now about, um, how many of these big corporations began like in someone's garage Yeah, and like who, what are the garage innovators of the church world? People that are like, okay, we're going to try this totally differently. We're going to not getting rid of sort of the theological bathwater, but like, is there a way for us to adjust our tactics and methodology? I just think, I just think that's really important. It is so good. And I know now as somebody who started a church, right. And right. now we're 10 years in, even in that short decade, a decade is not all that long. Right. Uh, you lose like and when you first start, you're like, we're going to try everything. Why not? We're going to celebrate everything. We're going to celebrate <laughs> right. everything we fail at. Throw we're everything against the wall and see what totally. sticks. Totally. And then as your church gets older, you're like, people start not enjoying the throw everything against the wall and start right. failing and stuff. And there's this, it really becomes part of your DNA. You got to fight for. I love how this ends. What if the church lived with such a missionary impulse this summer? Simple practices multiplied by thousands of believers in countless places around North America could saturate our geography with missionary intentionality. That's a great vision, right? Yeah, there. that's beautiful. I love it, and and it's so achievable. Like yeah. I think it 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 is uh, kind of the counter narrative of the person on the stage or the team on the stage or the people that do it and saying, "Hey, you all have a grill. Yes. Like all of you have passes to the pool. You all have." you know, yards that you mow like this, this is available for all of us. And it just, to me, that's the inspiration of the whole vision is like, we, we all can be living this way. Introvert, extrovert, old, young, what would it look like? How would our city change if we actually Mm -hmm. took this seriously? So we didn't, we'd encourage you, but also challenge you out there. Uh, What are some very easy ways that you can connect uh, and even uh, live out the gospel to your family, your friends, your neighbors, and the ways that you live, work, and play. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about one of my favorite drinks, that being lemonade, and a way that it was used to raise a lot of money for a great cause. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows online at 1160hope.com, and you can get our podcasts, uh, Google Play, Apple Podcast. And uh, every now and then, we like to bring stories. Sometimes our stories are heavy or they're more on the controversial side or political side, but sometimes we just want to go look at the good things uh, people are doing 
And in this case of this story we're going to reference out of Atlanta, it is uh, just the story of, of good things that kids are doing. Uh, so let me give you the background. It says Atlanta Child's Lemonade Stand raises $13,000 for immigrant children separated from parents. Uh, the, six, the Atlanta six-year-old who decided to start a lemonade stand to raise money for immigrant children separated from their parents at their bo- at the border, the mom named Sh- uh, Shannon uh, Gajaro wrote on her blog that she discussed with her six- and three-year-olds what was happening at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, and asked how they thought it could help. Let's listen to what she said, to how this all started with just a simple question uh, from her children. They were horrified i mean i both of them i can't remember which one said i think it was austin who said um wait kids in jail i mean just that concept of young children his age incarcerated was shocking yeah and so they said what can we do about it and i also want you to hear from shannon because i think some of this was driven by what was going on in her so let's listen to her again i'm a parent to young children and i can only imagine the circumstances that a family would have to be in to make the decision to make that arduous journey to then seek, you know, refuge in our country and then be separated from their families, possibly never to be reunited. I mean, that's that's just that's devastating. And so regardless of what you think of immigration debates or policy, this was a bunch of kids saying we want to do something uh, to help. And so. Uh, her son suggested, what about a lemonade stand? And the mom asked her local community on Facebook if anyone would be interested, and it kind of went viral. And so they created a virtual lemonade stand via Facebook's fundraiser tool. Uh, and then this brought about a lot of money, and they set the goal at $1,000. And ultimately, the family raised $13,000. Remember, this started with the question and the suggestion by a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, and so, uh, man, I find this, regardless of what you think about uh, what should be happening at the southern border, this is there. there is a crisis going on down there with people. And to see kids kind of leading the way here, man, it's an encouraging thing. It's an encouraging way to kind of uh, wrap up our show a little bit today. What about it is encouraging to you? Uh, kids caring. And I know kids are usually pretty innocent, so they're usually the first to care. Right. But... Uh, I think anytime kids are like, let's do something about a six-year-old and three-year-old, obviously the mom was the driver in this. Sure. But to, to have it spurred on by kids and them to be asking hard questions uh, and then to, uh, to kind of go for, let's do something about it. And, and it was all came from the kids again, you know, there's the old saying, right? That uh, the, the, the children shall lead them. Did I make that up that kind of a, you might have made that up. It's close. It's the close. old saying that Pastor Reverend Brian Fromm. Anytime you say that old saying, it's kind of like on the Internet when you're like Abraham Lincoln once said, um, be nice. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, it feels like uh, I don't know. I, I guess it's the um, it's the optimist in me to be like, oh, man, it's kids. This is there's something nicer about it. I, it's kind of heartwarming. No. What is optimistic about it? What makes you? What I'm I'm trying to mine a little deeper. Like yeah. what I'm curious why? Because I agree. I think it's an incredibly inspirational story. I think um, these are the kinds of like heartwarming ones that we need. I'm just trying to I'm trying to get beneath the surface a little bit there. What what is it about it that gives you optimism? Uh, it's the innocence of children. The the kids didn't debate with their mom. Well, mom, you know they're coming in illegally. Or here's what we should be doing at the border. It yeah. was. 
wow, there's kids separated from their family, which we can all agree has happened. And them going, can we kind of help? Yeah. Yep. And then not just saying, oh, you know, we can help, but actually helping and raising money and and doing something. This is probably going to do a lot to influence these kids who who did this. Right. They're going to remember this for especially the six year old. I don't know about the three year old, but um, it's going to affect the people who, um, you know, who gave money, who were a part of this. I think all of it is. It is a reminder also, I said this isn't about policy, but it is a reminder that regardless of what you think of the immigration debate, there are people in the middle of it. Yeah. And um, this was kids going, can we do, can we mom even do something to help? It wasn't like, let's do, it was, can we, can we help? Yeah. And I think if more adults probably ask that question and more churches ask that question of going, I don't know what I think about the policy, but in the meantime, can we help? I think a lot of good could happen. Yeah. I think too, the thing that I always find compelling about, children is is you know i feel like obvi the obvious places to go or to talk about their innocence mm-hmm. um but i think the less obvious one is is curiosity and possibility and you know they haven't had their idealism beaten out of them yet yes. they haven't had a whole idealism might be the better word here than innocence which yeah. can sometimes be i mean we all know yep. really overly idealistic adults yep. that uh have a hard time responding to an email in under a month you know so it's like <laughs> that definitely can play out in ways that aren't helpful to society and getting things done but there is something uh, i think to not only this story but also to the comments that jesus himself makes about children and talks about their proximity to the kingdom yes. and is saying to some very smart adult men and women, um, they're actually closer. And I, I always wondered too, is like, does part of their closeness have to do with their curiosity or mm. their willingness to ask questions, right? Nikki Gumbel had just tweeted something a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about the ratio of how many questions we ask on average as an eight year old versus how much we ask on average as a 38 year old. And it was, it was unbelievable. Yep. We just stop asking questions as adults because quote, that's the way things are, or that's the way it'll always be, or I could never make a difference. And that's the the part that I find so interesting about kids um, asking is because they don't even really know they're being revolutionary. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, pain and suffering and heartache, we could probably do something. Like, I think yeah. the whole story anchors on this statement that Shannon makes. She says, action breeds hope. Without action, my heartbreak is meaningless. How are you going to act today? And I mm. thought, wow, that'll, that'll preach right there, yeah. right? That it seems like we it's outrage is so easy right now and when everyone has a platform and everyone has a voice um it's also really easy to make it look like you care and i think people really do i'm not i'm not saying anyone that you know isn't actually driving down there themselves doesn't care but it's easy i think to live in the avenue of rhetoric and it's much more difficult and maybe getting increasingly so to actually do something about it yeah. and kids have a way of snapping us out of that absolutely funk of this is how it's always going to be, or we can never make a difference or what role could I play kids curiosity and their wonder and their willingness to just jump in. I just, I just think it's really beautiful. It's a cool point because I think anyone who's had kids or has kids, I remember when my kids were younger, your oldest might be getting to this point. If not, you're getting close is the incessant asking of the question. Why? Yeah. Why? And it can become downright aggravating sometimes, but it also makes you think as a parent, like, I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but like, you know, hey, you got to go do this. Why? I really don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> or, and and it, there's some, I remember, especially when my kids were younger, just being caught by their why questions. And you make a great point. Like, we probably stop asking questions as we get older of why or what can we do about this? Can we be part of a solution? Uh, and, and we need to probably get better at asking those questions. And like you said, the natural curiosity and the innocence of kids. 
uh, kind of leads the way or teaches us that. How do you, so how do you help your church do that specifically? Like your preaching structure, I imagine is similar to a lot of ours. Mm-hmm. There's not a Q and a section. It's mm-hmm. you have a microphone you're on a stage you're under the lights, right? I'm going to talk for a half hour and then we'll sing some songs and then you'll go, you know, how do you, the easy answer might be small groups, but other than that, how do we better cultivate a heart and spirit of curiosity of question asking uh, yeah, in our churches, in our, in our communities. I Can we even do that? I don't have an answer to that because I'm not sure that I'm doing it well or have an answer to that. So, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if you feel like you've got any traction on that. No, I don't think I have traction. I think we've tried to create third spaces mm. for dialogue. And, you know, some of those answers are coming through digital means. People feel yeah. much safer to ask some of these questions from behind a screen, which I totally get. And we want to lean into that. Like if you're going to if if that's what it takes for you to be vulnerable I'm okay with starting there. I don't want to end there, obviously, but we've definitely, especially if it's a series that we know is really intense, you know, our community 412 team does an awesome job. Like five times a year, we'll show a a really intense documentary at our building and then we'll invite an expert panel to be there immediately following so everyone can ask their questions and then we'll have a book chat later that month. So, you know, there's a lot of cool things happening that help cultivate that. Um, but you have to be interested in the first place to go yeah. to the event or go to, you know what I mean? Like yep. sometimes I wonder for the average church attender, do, do we, do we even challenge people enough to a life of curiosity, of That's wonder, of awe, of asking questions rather than uh, here are the three takeaways. Here's the action step. Here's the hashtag tweet. And we'll mm-hmm. see you next week. You know what I mean? That's like true. how do we, how do we do that in a way I think is, uh, has integrity is hard to do. Yeah. I think beyond being just encouraged by the story, it's a challenge to ask the question. Why? I, to ask the question, why and what can we do? Can we do anything uh, about this? Also, why did we not start that segment without Beyonce's Lemonade? Uh, I mean, how low hanging fruit was that? We should have. Maybe maybe another time. Next time. Okay. <laughs> next Lemonade story. <laughs> Coming up next, we are going to land this plane and do it the way we always do it with uh, Keith Conrad, our executive producer. His crazy things he's found on the internet. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. As we close this show, it's always done the same way. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, he gives us just crazy stories from the internet. We haven't read them. We're reading them uh, for the first time when we read them to you. Uh, he's picked the drops. Uh, that gets us off the hook. So, what's a drop, Brian? It's like the, you know, it's the clip. It's the, it's the sound that comes after we read the story. It's the funny uh, sound. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a drop was like when the beat drops when you're listening to. I think it can have EDM meetings. or whatever. I think yeah, that's one of them. Also, drop is what I probably often do with my phone. Drop. Yep. Or your ring on the countertop here. <laughs> never done that at all. You've never done that at my, all. My wife, I've never take off my ring ever. I, I'm going to ask them to find the sound clip, the most recent sound clip. <laughs> we could do a whole show of like, I just, just got, no, 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 that or rattled ice is going to be it. Oh, boy. You ready? You go first. Here we go. Kentucky. Man in underwear arrested at animal shelter after fighting invisible nemesis. I'm in on this one. Ah, this one sounds like it might be sad. But I'm going to go anyway. A Kentucky man was arrested after police found him allegedly in his underwear at a local animal shelter fighting someone who was not there. According to our news partners at WBON, not our news Aaron Nolan, right. Aaron <laughs> Nolan was outside the Madison County Animal Shelter in his underwear throwing things at passing motorists. <laughs> Court document. <laughs> you all right over there? This guy has like a legitimate problem, Brian, from. Oh, boy. Court documents say Nolan Peaceful. was... 
screaming at someone who was not there and was not making any sense. He told officers he had slept. He hadn't slept in weeks and that his heart was not beating. Nolan was taken into custody and charged with public intoxication of a controlled substance. Come back here and take what's coming to you. I'll bite your legs off. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, he's got serious issues. He's intoxicated. Um, but he also, has, he also hasn't slept, though. <laughs> because uh, anyway. That'll do it. Uh, speaking of, I purchased my dog and drove all the way to Kentucky and got my dog. Yeah. dog from Kentucky. Not an animal shelter, though. Mississippi. Spilled screws caused dozens of flat tires on Mississippi Highway. Oh, man. Authorities in Mississippi said dozens of vehicles ended up with flat tires when sheet metal screws were spilled along nearly 30 miles of highway. <laughs> The Mississippi Highway Patrol and the Jackson County Sheriff's Department said multiple calls came in Tuesday reporting flat tires and stranded vehicles. Investigators determined sheet metal screws, that is a dangerous word to say, had apparently <laughs> yeah, spilled proudy, from a vehicle across nearly 30 miles of interstate, You're doing it. Doing causing it, a total of 36 passenger You're cars so Way to go. and three semi-trucks so to end up so with multiple good. flat tires from the sheet metal screws. That's like the generic drop where there's not one. That... Yeah, it doesn't relate specifically exactly. to the story itself, which is probably for the best. Uh, Canada driver charged for allegedly using case of beer as child's booster seat. Nope, not okay. <laughs> oh, no. not okay. Canada. <laughs> Canada. You're, you're better than this. The driver has been charged after allegedly using a case of beer as a booster seat for a child in the car. Uh, provincial police say the two-year-old child uh, who was involved was not injured. That's good. Uh, though it may have technically boosted the child. Now we can child. laugh at it. Can we? <laughs> yeah. uh, where was I? Though it may not have technically boosted. It ha- oh, boy. You caught me off guard, Brian. The sheet metal screws. A, tw- <laughs> a 22-year-old from the township of Wellington North was charged with failing to ensure a child is properly seat belted. It also appears the child has been seated in the front seat of the vehicle. Wellington County OPP, yeah, you know me, <laughs> say that they then brought a proper child seat to the vehicle. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. I, I am down with OPP. Yeah, you know me. Are you, though, really? Georgia, family orders Moana cake, gets marijuana cake. <laughs> oh, Moana. Oh, that's so funny. A Georgia woman said a miscommunication while ordering her birthday cake led to a dessert having a marijuana theme no. rather than the intended <laughs> Moana theme. The birthday celebration brought a big surprise when the cake turned out to feature a marijuana leaf and a My Little Pony-style illustration of an equine smoking a joint. I think they thought that she had said marijuana Holy because we are from cow. South Georgia and kind of have an accent. So Moana sounded like marijuana. Uh, Davis <laughs> said she and her family wow. found the mix up humorous. We weren't mad about it. We thought it was funny. So we just ate it anyway. She said next year's cake will be less likely to involve a mix up. It won't be Moana or marijuana. I just won't get a design at all. What are you people <laughs> on dope? <laughs> Why would you not ask to clarify? I just you skipped over this part. It says, "I guess when they said that I love cartoons, they were just like, let's throw a little pony on there." <laughs> it had red eyes. It was smoking a joint with the tramp stamp of a pot leaf on its bottom. Okay, someone, someone. <laughs> That's is why I didn't read it. Getting promoted or Ooh. getting fired. All right. Last but not least, our home state, Illinois. Children found riding in pool on roof of car. Mom arrested. 
Officials in Dixon, Illinois, said they arrested a woman after finding two children inside of a pool that was strapped to the roof of a vehicle. Jennifer A. Janus Yeager, 49, oh. of Dixon, Illinois, was arrested on July 9th at 3.07. Police say Yeager is facing two counts of endangering the health or life of a child and two counts of reckless conduct. She was also cited for failure to secure a passenger of the age of eight under the age of 16. Uh, neither of them, though, were sitting on a case of beer. Very googly moogly. <laughs> I mean, if he, they held the pool down. No, you're going to get in trouble with CarMax and <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> I like pools and kids. That's a, those were some good ones by Keith today. He those did okay. Really he did okay. We're happy that you joined us today on this Thursday afternoon. We hope you have a great night for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.